You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. House Speaker Paul Ryan's retirement was long rumored before he said last week he is going to return to Wisconsin to spend more time with his family. But what kind of challenges would Ryan have faced had he run for another term? His district was drawn eight years ago to be pretty safely Republican, but that comfort has slowly eroded as Wisconsin Democrats have mobilized against Republican Governor Scott Walker, the Republican legislature, and Republican President Donald Trump. No question Ryan would have faced a tougher reelection campaign than he has before. But what else is changing in Wisconsin and what issues are likely to be motivating voters there this fall? Noah Ovshinsky is the news director for Wisconsin Public Radio. He's also a former reporter here at WDET. He joins us now to talk Ryan, Wisconsin, and the future of Republican politics. Noah, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's great to hear your voice. Uh, let's start with uh, Paul Ryan's district uh, there in Janesville, yeah. Wisconsin. What kind of district is that? And is it a place where politics are changing as we see in some other parts of the country? I think so. It's it's a really interesting district. And just to sort of place it uh, geographically, it's in the far southeastern corner of Wisconsin. So kind of south of Milwaukee and just north of the Illinois-Wisconsin state line. And it's a really diverse uh, district. There is rural areas, a lot of agriculture. There is manufacturing. Um, it really is, a, and diverse politically, I should, I should add as well. Um, you alluded in your introduction, Stephen, to a, a change in the district after the last um, redistricting. Mm-hmm. And it was a district that uh, it, you know, included uh, a Democratic stronghold of Beloit, and in the last redistricting, uh, kind of shed that uh, Democratic stronghold and gained a Republican stronghold in the western su- uh, suburbs of Milwaukee. And, and that sort of changed the politics, or at least the electoral politics down there uh, in that district uh, for the last several years and probably for years to come. Um, so talk about uh, how Paul Ryan has sort of changed a political profile of him last week, uh, said he came to Washington as a Jack Kemp Republican and is leaving as a Donald Trump Republican. Uh, how does that sort of match with what's happening in in that district? Yeah, I mean, Paul Ryan, since he was elected in 1998, has been incredibly popular in, in his district, e- even in, even one that was uh, you know, uh, had Democratic stro- strongholds for a while. Um, he, he he had support from Democrats and Republicans. It wasn't unusual to see people with lawn signs, you know, maybe supporting a, a Republican president and Paul Ryan, you know, or a, a rather a Democratic president and Paul Ryan. <laughs> that that wasn't unusual in his district. Um, and he was a really constant presence there. He comes from a well-known Janesville family, has been in the area for generations. Um, and he really had a very strong connection to the district. Now, in the last eight years, that's changed. Uh, first, you know, when he uh, joined the Republican ticket with Mitt Romney in, uh, in that presidential election, that sort of took him away from the district for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, when he became House Speaker, that, that changed the dynamic even more. He spent even less time here. And when he was in Janesville, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't out and about. And there's an enthusiastic Democrat who wants to take that seat. Is is that right? Tell us about the, that dynamic. Certainly enthusiastic and apparently well-funded. Um, Randy Bryce <laughs> uh, has gotten a lot of attention nationwide. I mean, he's a 
constant presence on on uh, the cable news and um and he he's got something like four million dollars in the bank which is a lot of money it's a lot for a congressional seat yeah and he he's a he's an iron worker uh, a working class guy who kind of his opening salvo was last june he um he released this really i think you know touching video i suppose of, that featured his son and his mother who was suffering from ms uh, and that was sort of this opening salvo and mm. since then he's been raising a lot of money a lot of it out-of-state money, I should add. Um, but he's become well-known in social media circles uh, for his Twitter handle, um, Iron Stash. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's got a rather, you know, large mustache <laughs> uh, that he's become known for. Right. And, uh, and he's just he's been out, uh, out in front uh, for the last year running for this seat. Yeah. Um, so you're from here in, in Michigan, and you live and work there in Wisconsin now. From the national level, I think a lot of People are looking very closely at both states uh, and at this region to try to tell what's coming next in the midterm elections uh, and the 2020 presidential election. Uh, How similar are the dynamics in Washington in terms of political change to what you can remember from here in Michigan? Also think about uh, places like Macomb County uh, here in Michigan, twice voting for Barack Obama, then voting for Donald Trump. Is that same kind of thing happening there? Yeah, there were absolutely parallels. Uh, It's a a really good observation, Stephen. There are absolutely absolutely parallels between 2016, certainly in Wisconsin and Michigan. You had counties that had gone Democratic in presidential elections uh, for several cycles and switched over uh, for, for Donald Trump in the last election. Um, and it helped carry, you know, helped carry him, basically, uh, certainly helped carry Wisconsin for him. Now, you know, that's, as far as, as, far as Paul Ryan is concerned, uh, you know, I think it's probably hurt him a little bit in his district only because, you know, Democrats are really energized mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. year, really energized. And so, I think the Democratic votes that maybe Paul Ryan could have relied on in any other election probably couldn't rely on uh, with this election. Um, And with turnout likely to be higher uh, in this election, I think, you know, that's certainly a dynamic that, you know, certainly wouldn't have been would be at play. Yeah. So so do you do you think that Paul Ryan is is being truthful when he says, look, uh, my kids have only known me as a weekend dad? I've accomplished the things I want to accomplish in Washington. That's why I'm going home. Or do you think that he really was looking at uh, this, this, uh, the potential of losing a seat in November to this upstart Democrat and said, you know, I'd rather not not be bothered with that kind of embarrassment for myself or for the party? Yeah, I, you know, I'm not a mind reader. Uh, you know, uh, if, we, <laughs> if we take him at his word, you know, certainly, you know, <laughs> being House Speaker is hard on a family. Yeah. I mean, there's no yeah. doubt about it. So that, that certainly is, uh, I think, a possibility. Um, I, I don't think, you know, I, mm, I, I, I think his opponents in the first district would have had a, let me just say this, would have had an uphill battle to beat him. I really do. Mm-hmm. Even with sort of the anti-Trump sentiment sort of circling around his district, even with well-funded opponents, um, you know, this is a guy who still continues to carry his district by significant, uh, significant percentage points and still includes very conservative parts of, of Wisconsin that reliably vote in midterm elections. Um, regardless of the popularity of the president. Right. Um, and so I think his opponents probably still had an up, upward battle, uh, uphill battle for them. I'm sorry, I'm, I don't think that's probably a major issue there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's fair to say that certainly the party has changed 
you know, during his time in Congress. Um, you know, I think he represents, like you noted early in the interview, you know, sort of a Jack Kemp uh, mm-hmm. conservative, and mm-hmm. that's, I think, you know, you'd have to be blind and deaf not to think that that's, that's not really where the party is right now. It's a I mean, tougher, it's the party of Donald Trump. Yeah, it's a tougher environment for those yeah. folks. Noah Shinsky, news director for Wisconsin Public Radio, former reporter here at WDET. Thanks for joining us. It was good to be here. Today. Thanks. Yep. Up next, we're going to talk to Republican State Senator Phil Pavlo about what he thinks the future of the GOP is here in Michigan. Stay with us on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Polls and media analysts are already talking about the so-called, quote, blue wave that threatens to sweep Republicans out of office during midterm elections later this year. And the GOP appears fractious in its efforts to stop that wave, caught between those who want to pass tax cuts and those who are worried about ballooning deficits between those who outwardly oppose President Trump and those who embrace his crass leadership and between those who are waiting for the party to return to, quote, normal and those who see it as forever changed by the events of 2016. Here to talk more about the future of the GOP is Phil Pavlo. He is a Republican who represents the 25th Senate District in St. Clair. Phil, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me back, Stephen. Yeah. So we were just talking with uh, someone who covers uh, the district that Paul Ryan's House Speaker Paul Ryan hails from in Wisconsin. He was talking about the similarities uh, to some degree between what is going on in Wisconsin in that district, what's going on here in Michigan. Uh, I, I first want to get your sense of where we are here uh, in, in in Michigan with regard to the GOP, which has dominated uh, state politics for a long time, and then in 2016 flipped uh, for the first time since 1988 and voted for a Republican for president. Uh, Just about, I don't know, 19, 20 months into that, though, there seems to be a lot of questioning and turmoil about uh, what will happen with Republican politics, what the future of it is. Uh, From where you sit, uh, where is this party headed? Well, I think we're in good shape. And I think that, you know, obviously all politics is local. And we look at Michigan, we're one of 26 states in the country that have the Republican trifecta uh, governor in both houses. Um, You know, going into a midterm election from a president who has uh, really made an industry of decisive, um, you know, media reporting on all ends, Um, these races really become local and how you choose the best candidates and how your candidates get their message out is clearly what holds a Republican advantage here. Uh, Will it be an easy uh, go in this next election? No, it won't be. They never are. Right. Um, You know, the, the, the white hot stove of political controversy is always burning. (laughs) Uh, The president is seen as a liability for a, for a lot of people in terms of sort of running with him, uh, the, even though he won this state in 2016. I think there's a lot of people who are saying, yeah, you know, I did that. I voted for him, but I'm not sure that I'm getting the things that I thought I would get. I'm not sure I like the way he does some of the things that he does or the, the incessant use of Twitter in really crass ways. Talk about how the state GOP comes to sort of reconcile itself 
with that dissatisfaction. We always see first-term presidents uh, especially lose uh, lose ground in those midterm elections. Uh, as the state party, how do you how do you stop that from being a dramatic change? Well, I think you got to highlight the accomplishments. And Donald Trump, for the first time in nearly 30 years, uh, delivered tax relief. Uh, not just to families, but to businesses and the entire community. So in Michigan, we're um, obviously taking advantage of that. There's more money in people's pockets. And, you know, I happen to represent a portion of Macomb County in my mm-hmm. Senate district. And uh, the sentiment around Donald Trump hasn't changed for the most part for the people that were uh, the strong supporters. But I think if you go back and, and I think that it's it'd be easy to highlight the number of you know, congressional candidates that wouldn't want a president coming into their district. This isn't anything new for Donald Trump, but I think Donald Trump will play a a pretty significant role in Michigan um, during the election because, you know, talking about the things that people wanted in November of 2016, and that was, you know, stronger economy, America first, stronger borders, um, and strength abroad. And that message isn't gone. Uh, it hasn't gone away. And he's starting to be able to talk about some of the accomplishments in those areas. Yeah. Now, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Phil Pavlo. He's a state senator from the 25th district in St. Clair Township, a Republican. We are talking about uh, Republican politics, Republican pol- politics at the state level, at the national level, the coming midterm elections, and what role. Uh, the president will play in either helping to hold majorities in Washington and here in the state of Michigan or whether he will be a hindrance, somebody, somebody who uh, accelerates the losing of uh, seats in the Congress and in the legislature. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number. Tell us what you think is going on inside the Republican Party. We've seen a lot of Republican legislators uh, at the national level say they are going to step away from politics rather than run again this fall. Uh, House Speaker Paul Ryan is the latest uh, in the line of people to do that. Uh, is the party sort of in uh, in flux? Is the party sort of caught between all of these sort of competing interests uh, that have seemed to be pulling it apart? Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we will work you into the conversation. Uh, Phil, I want to ask you about some of these conflicts that exist in in the Republican Party, and and the one that that leaps out to me as the most uh, sort of controversial, I guess, right now is this this uh, competition between the idea of tax cuts and deficits. Republicans have talked forever about the idea of not expanding the deficit. They have been uh, brutal on pre- uh, Democratic presidents, Bill Clinton, uh, Barack Obama, about the ways in which they handled deficits. And yet Donald Trump in his first two years in office passes a tax cut bill that will add trillions to the national debt uh, and will make the national deficit, uh, the, the analysts are saying, uh, as, as big as a, twil- a trillion dollars in the next four to six years. Uh, how can you intellectually reconcile those two things? How can a party um, say one thing and do another so boldly? Well, you can't. And while I applaud uh, the leadership of the president in giving the American worker a tax cut, at the same time, the continuing resolution that he signed was the largest budget increase 
uh, we've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And so those two are comp- they're competing principles in the Republican mindset. I think it's unfortunate that Congress hasn't been able to do one and then get the other one in control. And everybody who ran for Congress on the Republican ticket talked about reducing uh, the national debt. And we're pushing over the $20 trillion mark mm-hmm. as baby boomers are going to be coming into the system. Uh, the Medicaid and Social Security is only going to ratchet that up. Uh, I'm all for tax cuts and putting more money in people's pockets, but you have to do a corresponding transaction on the expense side of government's balance sheet, and they haven't been able to do that. And they're going to have to come back and explain to the voters uh, why is there this disparity and why are you driving it up. And and the the core fundamental Republican belief is less government is better, more money in our pocket is better, but on the other end, you're adding to the debt on the balance sheet. How do you how do you reconcile those two things? And so. When people come back from Washington and try to explain that to their constituents, that can be a potentially difficult conversation, but it's one that has to be had. But uh, is this uh, the marking of a shift, I guess, in Republican politics? I mean, do you you expect that they will walk back from their deficit hawking uh, as President Trump uh, sort of changes the party and changes the priorities? Or... Uh, will they sort of, I guess, push back and say, uh, we've got to make another run at the kind of budget reconciliation uh, that we've been talking about? Oh, they're going to be forced to make another run at it. And they, whether that happens between now and November is anybody's guess. But, um, you know, it's always good to identify spending that, you know, the people of this country appreciate. And that's, you know, strengthening the military. That's something that uh, Donald Trump made very clear in his campaign. Uh, that comes with a cost. Uh, the real issue is are Republicans or Democrats going to get serious about dealing with the entitlement time bomb that's going there? Uh, and are we going to are we going to take a hard look at trying to ring fence that issue? And that's the hardest piece of politics. But see, I, you know, and I always feel like I mean, f- for starters, uh, obviously, I believe that that uh, we ought to fund those things uh, and make sure that people are taken care of. Uh, and that should be more of a priority than the budget, uh, the budget considerations. Um, but but when we talk about uh, entitlements and what percentage, I guess, they make up of the budget as uh, as compared to defense, as compared to some of the other things that Republicans want to spend money on. I mean, that's uh, there's a substantive debate that still has to take place about that. I also argue that that Republicans have less incentive to actually rein in entitlements uh, or social spending uh, than they than they make out. I mean, a lot of their constituents depend on these programs too. Uh, baby boomers, as you point out, are are split among Democrats and Republicans. They all are going to need help with uh, Social Security, Medicaid, the things that uh, are Medicare, uh, the things that that we've put in place here. How how do you deal with that as a party, uh, sort of reconciling those two competing interests? Doesn't it matter that we take care of people who need help? It absolutely does matter. And I don't think that there's anybody in Congress or the president himself that's talking about impairing the Social Security system but there has to be a, an acknowledgement that the system isn't safe anymore. It doesn't have any essential assets tied to it. So Congress's job is to, to develop a process uh, that over the next 25 or 40 years, make sure that that's safe. Nobody's talking about changing. We're talking about a way of how do we prioritize it to make sure that the people that are in that position uh, are going to be able to receive that benefit that they've paid into, that they've been promised. I think going forward, the conversation has to be about 
um, a complete revamp of our Social Security system in terms of eligibility. Uh, you know, but I don't think that there's a political willingness to have that conversation, particularly in an election year. But the interesting point is the electorate is almost always right, Stephen. Uh, whether you agree with it or not, on that given day, this country said Donald Trump, this country said Republican control of House and Senate. What we have to understand, and the, our job is not just passing laws, but our job is to understand what the people in our district are feeling and what you know, what they're feeling very strong about. And if you don't deliver that, you're coming back to the voters within two years. And that's the interesting part about a two-year congressional term. You have to go back and explain what you did. And there, you'll get another acknowledgement or the opposite on that day. But the problems are big. They're hard to handle. Um, and it just it's an indication of a lack of vision of how we deal with the entitlement spending. It doesn't necessarily have to default to less of it. Yeah. It just has to be managed. Uh, before I let you go, before we end the show, actually, uh, today, I, I, I want to ask you a little about Michigan State. You're the chair of the Senate Education Committee. And while that deals with K-12 and not higher ed, uh, you must think about this public institution and wonder how they are doing by our young people. Give me your your quick take on what is going on in East Lansing. Well, I think the more that they dig, the more that they're going to find. And I think it's just appalling uh, the way that that university handled their business around these young women. Um, And it's a national disgrace. It's something that is going to be talked about for a very long time, long before Michigan State gets back on a solid footing because they've got credibility issues, they've got transparency issues, they've got a structure there by all accounts has been pretty much out of control. The Senate uh, looked at about a seven or eight bill package a month or so ago. The State House is also working on it. And at the center of that, uh, we have to keep the victims in our minds and try to look at processes through transparency that can eliminate that from happening going forward. And they've got a long way to go. Uh, The House will be working on their pieces, and I would assume that most of the summer will be taking up um, these bills and uh, try to offer some protection uh, to all the universities. Our higher ed budget was passed out of committee last week, and it's um, it's got some sanctions in there if all the Title IX processes aren't followed in a transparent way. And from a legislative perspective, that's really the only yeah. tool we have with our autonomous universities. Uh, uh, quickly, what's the solution? Is Engler the right person to be interim president? Are the trustees the right people to guide that university? Well, I think we're going to have new trustees coming in in November. I think two, you new. know, yeah. And I'm wondering why the trustees have been able to stay. Um, is John Engler the right guy? Time will tell. I know that uh, there's a lot of controversy around him politically um, and institutionally. But I think going forward, is he's got to write that ship, and the team around him has to write that ship, and they have to put those victims first. And anything less, in my opinion, would be a failure. Uh, let the search go on for new leadership there. Um, the would board, you support uh, removal of the trustees? Uh, on a, cer- a certain number of them, I probably would, mm-hmm. absolutely, because I think that uh, whether or not they were complicit in the activity there, um, that job comes with a role and a responsibility to every student and to every taxpayer in this state, and, and in my opinion, um, they they failed to fulfill that obligation. Okay. Phil Pavlo, state senator from the 25th District. As always, thanks for joining us on Detroit Today. That's going to do it for us today. I'll be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, community service of Wayne State University. We'll see you tomorrow.